Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group where we study 10 chapters in this book series, The Words of the Buddha. Starting with volume 2 all the way through volume 13, we study 10 chapters a week that have the words of the Buddha, a reference for you to go back and see the original source text, and explanations to help you understand the Buddhist teachings even more beyond what he said himself. So I'd like to welcome all of you to today's class. If you've been reading these chapters and you're joining us to get help with that, that's wonderful. You'll be able to ask questions as we go in today's class. If you're joining us for the first time, it's okay because we actually display these chapters on the screen and we read them during the class. So if you haven't read these chapters for any reason, you'll be able to follow along in today's class because we'll be reading the chapters. I'll be discussing them to help you understand them a bit deeper. And then I'll open up to any questions that you guys might have related to the chapters. And then if you're brand new to this program, you can download these books and read 10 chapters a week and participate in each one of the classes as we go forward. So this week, we're in chapters 71 through 80 in volume three. So we'll be doing those after our meditation. We start each class with a meditation, just a brief little meditation to kind of clear the mind and prepare it for study. So I'd like to invite you to pull up a meditation cushion or pull up a chair and get your body and mind prepared for meditation so that we can do that together. Then afterwards, we will go ahead and study these chapters. So go ahead and make your lower body comfortable as well as your hands and arms. Your upper body should be nice and erect Closing the eyes, you would like to start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. I'm just going to give you a little bit of guidance here. People who tend to join this program are a bit further along in their meditation practice. Breathe in through the nose and out through the nose. Start bringing the mind's awareness to the breath. The breath is the present moment. Wherever you observe that the mind is off the breath, just cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath. Breathing in and out. I'm going to do some chanting to ease us into meditation. And then it's up to you to do the work, to observe the breath. Wherever you notice that the mind is off the breath, cut off that thought 
and bring the mind back to the breath.
Our community here, as we gather, meditating to motivate, encourage, and support each other in our practice, we also choose to study the words of the Buddha. As part of this path to enlightenment and understanding what is the path to enlightenment so that we can learn, reflect, and practice, we choose to study the words of the Buddha. Going back to the original source text, which is the Pali Canon, this is where they wrote down the Buddhist teachings after his death. Now we have really good quality, reliable translations that are in English so that we can glean what the Buddha was actually teaching and what he wasn't teaching. In doing so, learning, reflecting, and practicing, we can see the truth for ourselves, acquire wisdom, and improve the condition of the mind through training the mind. So I'd like to welcome anyone who's joined us since we started our meditation. We're going to go ahead and switch over to studying the words of the Buddha with a student reading the chapter that we're studying. And then I will go ahead and teach afterwards. 
and then we'll open up for any questions that you guys have as a result of the words of the Buddha. So I'll go ahead and turn things over to the moderators, Basum, Manal, and Nick, to help moderate the class. As you guys have questions, you can put those into Facebook, YouTube, and Zoom. The moderators will see that and then get your question asked during the class. If you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions that you like directly. So I'll go ahead and turn things over to all of you guys and specifically the moderators. Hello, teacher. Let's go to Miranda for the first chapter. Craving and anger does not exist. Monks, there are these four things that are born. What for? Craving is born from craving. Anger is born from craving. Craving is born from anger. And anger is born from anger. When, distant from sense desires, distant from unwholesome mental states, enters and resides in the first jhana, which is with thinking and pondering, based in seclusion, filled with excitement and joy. On that occasion, craving born from craving does not exist in him. Anger born from craving does not exist in him. Craving born from anger does not exist in him. And anger born from anger does not exist in him. When, with subsiding of thinking and pondering, by gaining inner tranquility and oneness of mind, he enters and resides in the second jhana, which is without thinking and pondering, based in concentration, filled with excitement and joy. The third jhana, the fourth jhana, on that occasion, craving born from craving does not exist in him. Anger born from craving does not exist in him. Craving born from anger does not exist in him. And anger born from anger does not exist in him. Great. Thank you, Miranda. So here the Buddha is going into a level of detail about craving and anger that is beyond what he talks about in the Four Noble Truths or any of his other teachings. As we have studied in the group learning program and in this program as well, the high level problems in the unenlightened mind is craving, anger, and ignorance or that unknowing of true reality. And we discuss this in detail in the group learning program and even in this program, there's some teachings around that and discussion around that. But here, the Buddha is going into detail about how essentially craving can be on top of craving. And I explain this in this particular chapter to help you understand this. And I use the example of wealth, that if somebody has craving for wealth, we know that's going to lead to discontentedness. It's also going to lead to unskillful conduct because of that craving, that wanting, that longing, that mental longing with a strong eagerness all craving is going to produce discontentedness. But here the Buddha talks about craving born from craving. What this would be is if you're craving wealth, for example, and then there's additional cravings that spawn from that. So in this example that I used in the book, where I talk about someone who has craving for wealth, then there might be craving for promotions at work, there might be craving for a certain title. There might be cravings for a new house or a new car, what have you. All of these different cravings are spawned off of the one that where the person is craving for wealth. So this is how craving is born from craving. And we'll go through and talk about these others if you guys like too. But what the Buddha is describing here is that once somebody reaches the first jhana and moves through the first, second, third, and fourth jhana, which are described in detail in other parts of this book series, that someone doesn't have this. They will still have craving. They will still have anger. They will still have ignorance when someone's in the jhanas, but they won't have craving on top of craving. 
or anger born out of craving and craving born of anger and anger is born from anger. So as I describe in this chapter, those kind of subsidiary types of cravings and angers don't exist in one who's moved into the jhanas. And this is one of the reasons why discontentedness is significantly decreased once somebody reaches the jhanas. And then as they progress through the first, second, and third stage of enlightenment, discontentedness is significantly decreasing and diminishing more and more and more until they get to that fourth stage as an arahant where all discontentedness is eliminated 100%. So I would like to just kind of pause here and see if you guys have questions on the other three, which are anger born from craving or craving is born from anger or anger is born from anger, or even this one that I was just talking about craving is born from craving rather than go through and teach each individual one. Since it's in the book, I thought I would just kind of pause and see if there's questions. Well, since Alan has a question, let's go to him. Uh, hi, teacher. Very quickly. Um, so, the sort of juxtaposition of craving and anger, is this, is this the two of the three poisons that are sort of being stilled as you get into the jungle? Yes, because the problem with the unenlightened mind, the, one of the most significant problems is this central desires where the mind is craving through the six sense bases, when that is kind of quenched a bit by moving into the jhanas, a practitioner will need to kind of be distant from sensual desires. They haven't eliminated them 100% yet. You don't eliminate them until you get to the third stage. But to get into the jhanas, a person would be practicing things like the five precepts, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, would build up a really solid meditation practice, and they would start distancing themselves from sensual desires, starting to kind of thin that out a bit. So since the mind is no longer having as strong of a craving through these sensual desires, this discontentedness is diminished a bit by being in the jhanas because there isn't as much craving through these sense bases as there is when you're not in the jhanas or when you're off the path entirely. So it's those cravings through the senses that causes significant discontentedness in the mind. And there's others of those fetters as well, as you know, but it's really that central desire that produces so much discontentedness because of the mind craving through the six sense bases. And someone who's in the jhanas will have distanced themselves from that still having central desire, but somewhat removed from it, kind of a layer removed. So therefore, there will be less discontentedness in the jhanas. Excellent. Thank you, teacher. You're welcome. Well, teacher, uh, sometimes if one stopped eating for many hours, then the body needs to eat, uh, needs strongly to eat. How can one differentiate between this strong need to eat and sensual desire for a uh, food. Okay, so it's important to understand that the craving that we're talking about here in the Buddhist teachings is not that you're hungry. Hunger pain that the body experiences sending a message to the mind is helping the mind know that, hey, this body needs food. And that mechanism is there for a reason so that the mind can then make a choice to eat food because the body needs nourishment in order to sustain life. So that's not what we're talking about in terms of craving or craving through the sense bases. 
what you'll notice if the mind is craving through the tongue for certain flavors, for example, as it relates to food, is you will notice that certain foods will bring pleasant feelings to the mind. And I usually use the example of chocolate cake because a lot of people will understand this one. Whereas if you have this craving for chocolate cake, craving desire attachment, not just that you're hungry for food, because if you're hungry for food, you'll eat any food that you can get your hands on. You're willing to eat anything. But if the mind has a craving desire attachment for a particular food like chocolate cake, then you might seek it out. You might go to a certain place. And when you get it, there's these pleasant feelings that come into the mind. And if you don't get it, then there's these painful feelings that come into the mind. So if you have an idea, not just about chocolate cake, but any particular food and you order it at a restaurant or you're planning to order it at a restaurant and that food is there and you feel such pleasure to get that particular food, then you can see that the mind is discontent, arising conditioned pleasant feelings because it's basing its inner feelings on this condition of getting food. It experiences these pleasant feelings related to the chocolate cake or some other food. But then if you go to that restaurant and you're really looking forward to ordering a certain food, whether it's chocolate cake or something else, and the server says, sorry, we don't have that today. And if the mind experiences painful feelings, meaning sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, even the slightest annoyance, then you know there's some amount of craving, desire, attachment there that the mind was looking forward to this food. It couldn't get it. Therefore, it experienced these painful feelings of sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, so forth. So that's how you'll know that a particular food is a central desire. But remember the senses, there's the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, bodily contact in the mind. There are six individual senses that the mind is longing for pleasant feelings through these senses. And when it gets the objects of its affection, it will arise pleasant feelings. You'll experience happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria, all of those kind of things will come into the mind when you get the objects of your affection, whether it's through the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the bodily contact, or the mind itself. But those same things that the mind is longing for, the objects of its affection, if it doesn't get those fulfilled, then it's going to experience those painful feelings, sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, all of those things, and guilt and shame and fear, all of these things that are classified as painful feelings. So whether it's the tongue with food or whether it's some other sense base, you will notice that any time the mind becomes discontent, there's something that the mind wants. There's something that it's longing for. There's some strong eagerness that it's having through these sense bases. And anytime it's experiencing pleasant feelings, conditioned pleasant feelings, it's going to be based on something through these sense bases. Or if it experiences painful feelings, it's going to be because the mind was longing through these sense bases and it couldn't get the objects of its affection. Therefore, the painful feelings come into the mind. So this is how you can determine whether it's just that you're hungry for food is that you would eat pretty much anything versus 
is there a true craving desire attachment for a specific food like chocolate cake is that you'll see the arising of pleasant feelings you'll see the arising of painful feelings Teacher David, in directly your example of going into a restaurant and ordering some things on the menu, um, could the could a person um, know what they want and um, choose the better option of what they want because they like that option? If that option was not available, um, and you remain, um, you know, without any, you, you're not upset over it and the mind is not, you know, clinging to anything. Um, so in the scenario where you would want to show interest in what you want because you like that item, would that be something that is still um, sort of in the middle? If an enlightened being went into a restaurant with the idea of a certain dish that they were going to order, it would be an idea, it would be a thought, it would be something that they're interested or something they would prefer to eat. And when they go into that restaurant, they would like that dish, they would prefer that dish. And if they order it and they have it, it's like, okay, I'll eat this dish. But if an enlightened being has a certain like or a certain preference and they go into the restaurant and they order a dish and they don't have it, then the enlightened being is just going to be like, okay, well, let's just look at what's what else is there. You know, I can order this other dish and be completely content with that. So when an enlightened being finds out that the particular dish they had a certain like or a certain preference for isn't available, they're not going to feel any irritation, even the slightest annoyance, because they understand that it's impermanent, that that dish isn't permanently going to be available for them. And they didn't have an initial craving to begin with. They just went to the restaurant with a certain interest or a certain preference of what they would like to eat and then when they met with impermanence they would just move to the next thing and either choose not to eat and be completely content with that or maybe just order a different dish and be completely content with that but there would be no arising of any kind of feelings as a result of the dish not being available it would just be like oh okay that's impermanent so let's move to the next thing that the mind would still be just as peaceful and content as they were when they went into the restaurant as now when they're confronted with that dish isn't available. Okay, still peaceful and content and joyful, just moving to the next dish or potentially not eating at all. Right. Perhaps I didn't make myself clear in the language that I'm using. Um, if I walk into a restaurant and I chose the restaurant because they have a particular dessert and um, I asked for an order of that dessert. Wouldn't the mind have already formed a feeling towards that, uh, selecting that particular item? Um, and this is in the scenario where that item was not available. The mind is not attached to that. The mind just lets that go because the option is not there. Okay, let's move on. But initially when I'm choosing an item because of the flavor profile, there's already a feeling that's arose there, am I right? The only way that a pleasant feeling, a painful feeling, or a neither painful nor pleasant feeling is going to arise is if there's a craving there. There's not going to be a feeling that is going to arise if there's not craving. This is, you can see independent origination and you can observe for yourself that 
a conditioned pleasant feeling is going to be based on some condition. And that condition is that the mind is craving the piece of chocolate cake. So when it gets it, or even before they go into the restaurant, the mind is already craving the chocolate cake. And that's the reason why it's choosing to go to that restaurant. But a person who's interested in eating, an enlightened being who's already trained their mind to not have craving, they're going to be completely content with one restaurant versus another or one dish versus another. So there's a difference between a craving for something, which is going to produce feelings, pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, versus having an interest, or you would like to have this dish, or you would prefer to have this dish. So you can walk into a restaurant or choose to go to a restaurant because you have a preference for this dish, but you'd be fine either way. So it's more about the craving versus the like or the preference or the interest to eat certain thing. If it's just an interest, if it's just a preference to eat something, then you can easily switch your mind to anything else, no matter what happens as a result of impermanence. If there's a craving there to have a certain dish, when it meets with impermanence, there's going to be some arising of painful feelings. And likewise, if there's some craving there, when the mind gets what it wants, there's going to be a rising of pleasant feelings. So that's why when you observe the arising of pleasant feelings, you know there's a craving there. And that's why the Buddha teaches to cut that off and let it go. Because by knocking down the mind's arising of pleasant feelings, you gradually eliminate all craving. So therefore, you won't ever experience those painful feelings related to that particular craving. But if you allow the mind to keep craving, 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 and experiencing those pleasant feelings, at some point it's going to experience painful feelings as well. So in order to be moving this mind to enlightenment, not only do you need to be aware of the painful feelings, but you need to be aware of the pleasant feelings as well, so that when those arise based on some condition, you cut those off and let them go too. And in order to practice, the difference between interest and craving um, and I'm not talking about just gross level craving it's just truly um, you know understanding that choosing something and selecting something is coming from a place of craving um, at the tiniest level um, I, I it, it would be a lot more practice that would be needed for this uh, and especially because the mind is thinking that even having a preference indicates having craving. So um, I will need to investigate this further. Yeah, having a preference doesn't mean that there's craving there. I'll give you an example. Say your husband says, hey, Manal, let's go out to this brand new Afghanistan restaurant that I found. Uh, and drove by today. And if you got excited, you're like, oh, yes, I've been wanting to eat Afghanistan food for so long. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, there you see the pleasant feelings are already arising in the mind because there's craving there. Where if he says, okay, let's go to the Afghan restaurant. You're like, okay, sounds good. Let's go. And then on the way, you're like, all right, we're going to eat Afghan food. And then when you get there and the food is delicious and you enjoy it, it's like, oh, great. This is absolutely wonderful place to be. And thank you so much for coming here. This was an outstanding meal. But the mind's not going to try to hold on to it and crave it and want it and desire it. 
And then in this same example, if you're on your way to the Afghan restaurant and you get there and it's closed, if there is a craving there, the mind's going to be disappointed. The mind's going to be frustrated or irritated. But if there's no craving there and it's just like, all right, let's go to the Afghan restaurant and then you show up and it's closed. Oh, it's closed. Okay, well, let's go to a different restaurant. And then the mind's completely content to do that. So when you operate with an interest and a preference for something, then the mind can very easily deal with impermanence when it shows up because the mind wasn't craving or clinging to any particular thing. But when the mind is craving and clinging, when impermanence shows up, it's going to experience some strong feeling as a result because it has that condition of craving and clinging in the mind. Mm -hmm. uh, thanks, teacher. Doesn't seem to have any more questions for this chapter. Okay, so let's go to the next one. Well, calm and reflection. Monks, these two qualities have part in true wisdom. What two? Calm and reflection. If cultivated, what profit does calm attain? The mind is cultivated. What profit results from a cultivated mind? All craving is abandoned. Monks, if reflection is cultivated, what profit does it attain? Wisdom is cultivated. <clears throat> If wisdom is cultivated, what profit does it attain? All ignorance is abandoned. A mind defiled by craving is not liberated, and wisdom defiled by ignorance is not developed. Thus, monks, through the fading away of craving, there is liberation of mind, and through the fading away of ignorance, there is liberation by wisdom. All right. Thank you, Bossum. So this is kind of a short little teaching and the Buddha was most likely saying something before this and after this to arrive to this particular teaching but you can see here where he's kind of calling out two particular qualities of mind that are really important for your practice and developing your practice because if you understand that the problem is craving anger and ignorance or this unknowing of true reality what you're doing is you're antidoting that and you're transforming that. You're moving the craving towards generosity. You're moving the anger towards loving kindness. You're moving this ignorance or unknowing of true reality towards wisdom. Those are the high level understandings of the problems in the unenlightened mind. And then the 10 fetters go into a lot more detail. So as you learn and you practice, what you're trying to ultimately get to is wisdom because that's what's going to unravel all of the problems in the unenlightened mind because ignorance is the main hindrance. So when you understand dependent origination, ignorance is the top line issue that all unenlightened beings are experiencing that then leads successively through multiple steps to discontentedness. In the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha gives a very quick and short and concise understanding of what is causing discontentedness. But in dependent origination, he pulls back more layers and you can see the detailed description step by step by step of how ignorance, this unknowing of true reality leads to discontentedness. So the ultimate goal through anyone's Buddhist practice and learning and practicing these teachings should be to acquire wisdom. So this is where I share that this path is about learning, reflecting, and practicing the teachings so that you can independently discover the truth 
to acquire wisdom. And as you observe the wisdom for yourself, that's where your mind becomes unshakable and completely steady because nobody can shake you off of that truth. So here the Buddha is talking about two qualities that lead to true wisdom. And he talks about remaining calm, keeping the mind calm, and then having this inner reflection, which are two parts that I also talk about in the teachings that I share. I talk about how by maintaining calmness of mind, this leads to mindfulness or awareness of mind, which leads to concentration or singleness of mind, which then allows you to access wisdom and apply wisdom to any given situation to be able to produce a wholesome outcome. Whereas if the mind is uncalm, then you're lacking awareness of mind, you're lacking concentration, and there you can't access wisdom to make a wise decision in a particular situation. So any time in daily life, not just in meditation, but in daily life, in order to get to that mental discipline that the Buddha talks about in the Eightfold Path, you really need to maintain calmness and composure, essentially equanimity. You need to practice that evenness of temper in order to remain calm, because by remaining calm, the mind being calm, you can then practice mindfulness, concentration, and then access wisdom in order to produce better and better results in your life. And then this other quality of reflection, this inward looking eye, where you kind of look inward to discover the truth, this leads to wisdom. So the Buddha is calling out these two qualities of mind because they're kind of like the prerequisites. What ultimately he's talking about here is he's talking about how by remaining calm, it leads to elimination of craving. And also by having inner reflection, it leads to elimination of ignorance. And that takes care of two of the main poisons in the mind. So these are two very important qualities of mind to cultivate, both calmness and that inner reflection, that when things are happening in your life, you don't just plow past it and be like, oh, well, let's go to the next thing. You take your time and you look inward and you try to figure out something that just occurred, both positive or wholesome and also negative or unwholesome. Look at these things together. If something goes really, really well, it produces wholesome results. Look at that and reflect on that so that you can see what things were you practicing as part of the Buddhist teachings that led to that wholesome outcome. And conversely, if you have unwholesome outcomes in certain decisions that you make, use that inner reflection in order to observe what parts of this teachings, what part of this path to enlightenment weren't you practicing? Maybe multiple parts. Maybe you didn't have right intention, right speech, right action, or other parts of this path. And when you do that inner reflection and you can see very clearly the challenges that you are facing and what you weren't practicing that led to those unwholesome results, then you can clean it up and make it better. Whereas if you reject the unwholesomeness that you're experiencing and you think everything that's going on in your life is already perfect, then you're not doing that inner reflection to figure out what areas of my practice do I need to clean up in order to make it better and produce better results? So that's why when I talk about learn, reflect, and practice, that reflection is so important to look inward. So here the Buddha is talking about calmness. What profit does the calmness attain? Well, it cultivates the mind. The mind is developed. It helps you to 
get to that mindfulness, that concentration, and that wisdom ultimately. But here he identifies how it eliminates craving and abandons craving. And then when he talks about having this inner reflection and cultivating that, what profit or what benefit does it attain? Well, it leads to wisdom. And wisdom is the antidote to this ignorance or this unknowing of true reality. And then he kind of sums it up and explains a mind defiled by craving is not liberated. It's not free. It doesn't have freedom. It's still going to have these strong feelings in the mind. And he says, you know, this mind that is defiled by ignorance or unknowing of true reality, it's not free. It hasn't yet been liberated. So the other way to say this is by abandoning craving and ignorance, among other things, the mind is then liberated and free. Well, what do you have to do to do that? There's lots of aspects of these teachings that he shares that you need to do in order to do that and accomplish that. But right here, you can see that kind of the prerequisites for getting to the abandoning of craving and the abandoning of ignorance is to maintain your calmness, composure, and to have this inner reflection. Well, doesn't seem to have any question for this chapter literature. Okay. So we'll move on to the next one. Yes, the next volunteer is Manal. One who inclines towards Nibbana. Monks, just as the river Ganges slants, slopes, and inclines towards the east, so too a monk who develops and cultivates the four jhanas slants, slopes, and inclines towards Nibbana, enlightenment. And how monks does a monk who develops and cultivates the four jhanas slant, slope, and incline towards Nibbana? Here a monk, distant from sense desires, distant from unwholesome mental states, enters and resides in the first jhana, which is with thinking and pondering, based in seclusion, filled with excitement and joy, and with the subsiding of thinking and pondering, by gaining inner tranquility and oneness of mind, he enters and resides in the second jhana, which is without thinking and pondering, based in concentration, filled with excitement and joy. And with the fading away of excitement remaining imperturbable, unable to be upset or excited, calm, serene, mindful and clearly aware, he experiences in himself the joy of which is the noble one say, peaceful is he who resides with equanimity and mindfulness. He enters the third jhana and having given up pleasure and pain and with the fading away of former gladness and sadness, he enters and resides in the fourth jhana, which is beyond pleasure and pain, and purified by equanimity and mindfulness. It is in this way, monks, that a monk who develops and cultivates the four jhanas slants, slopes, and inclines towards nibbana. All right. Thank you, Manal. So here, the Buddha is explaining how by reaching the jhanas, you're going to have a tendency to move towards enlightenment as well. There's the potential that somebody can get into the jhanas in this life and attain enlightenment in this life. But there's also the potential that someone may end up only going to the jhanas or the first, second, or third stage of enlightenment as well. But reaching to the jhanas, a practitioner knows that their practice is coming together very nicely because the difference between a mind that's off the path and a mind that is on the path versus a mind that is on the path and in the jhanas 
it's like night and day. There's a lot more concentration. There's a lot more focus. There's a lot more clarity of mind. And these other qualities that the Buddha talks about here as well. So he's describing the qualities of the first jhana, the second jhana, the third jhana, and the fourth jhana. But what leads to these jhanas is putting together your practice of the Eightfold Path, which includes right view all the way through right concentration. A practitioner wouldn't be able to get to the jhanas without first putting that together, which includes the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the five precepts, and the Eightfold Path itself. Those are all kind of subsidiary teachings that kind of sync up and plug into the Eightfold Path. So there needs to be a well-cultivated mind that's been training through the Eightfold Path. And if you've investigated the Eightfold Path, you know that, yes, meditation is part of it, but there's this whole practice outside of meditation that we do on a daily basis in terms of the way that we set our intentions, our speech, our actions, our livelihood, applying right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, and so forth. You wouldn't be able to experience these jhanas if you weren't putting that together really, really well for an extended period of time. And you should be able to observe these qualities that the Buddha is talking about that the mind experiences as you move into these jhanas. And that is an indication that things are being put together pretty well. And then that's the time to really start honing in on those first three fetters of the 10 fetters so that you can move into the first stage of enlightenment. But in reality, by that point, with your practice of the Eightfold Path really well put together and really moving forward and you're experiencing the benefits of that, at that point, not only can you really focus on the three fetters really closely, but you really should develop a really good understanding of all 10 fetters because there's not as much work to do anymore on the Eightfold Path because you've already put that together so well that now the real work begins to release these 10 fetters from the mind. So you can almost look at learning and practicing the Eightfold Path and all the other teachings associated with it as kind of preparing the mind to be able to now release these 10 fetters. You wouldn't be able to go in and just release the 10 fetters because the mind is holding on to them too tightly. So all that other preliminary work is like softening up the mind and getting it ready to release these 10 fetters. And the indication to you that you're at those jhanas is you'll start seeing these qualities of mind starting to arise that the Buddha is talking about here when he describes the jhanas. And this will set you up for the attainment of enlightenment potentially in this life. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter? Manel has a question. Let's go to her. It appears um, from the Buddha's words that between the second and the third jhana, that excitement and joy um, have dropped and um, uh, the mind is more mindful and aware, unable to be excited. So that there's a distinction there which I'm curious about. Um, and why is it that the excitement and joy is there in the second and yet in the third it's completely not there is it more or less because there's there's a um a grasp on true equanimity and therefore the feeling of excitement is um it, it levels out basically uh, where the mind, mind is able to remain in the calm 
And so I'm just curious about how in the second jhana, there's clearly excitement and joy still there. Um, so is there a noticeable difference between the second and third jhana in terms of these two qualities? Yeah, so as the mind's moving through these jhanas, excitement drops off, meaning it lessens, right? The mind is still going to experience pleasant feelings, conditioned pleasant feelings, even when you're moving into the first, second, and third stage of enlightenment, but they start being diminished and diminished and diminished. The joy is still going to be there all the way until the mind's enlightened. It's still going to be experiencing that unconditioned joy. So here in the jhanas, the mind gets its first taste of that unconditioned joy and what that tastes like, but it's not permanent yet because it still has these conditioned feelings that it's dealing with because of the central desire. Here in the jhanas, it's distant from the senses, sense desires. It hasn't eliminated them entirely, so it's still experiencing conditioned feelings such as excitement. But excitement fades away, but there's still happiness. There's still conditioned happiness even in the jhanas and in the first, second, third stage of enlightenment. So it's not until the mind fully moves to the fourth stage where it's actually enlightened that you experience this unconditioned joy and there's no longer any conditioned feelings. So what you're saying there in terms of equanimity, yes, that's what moves the mind away from these conditioned pleasant feelings that no matter what's going on in your life, you can remain calm, composed, evenness of temper, and you're not going to experience those extreme, excited, pleasant feelings. You're not going to experience those extreme, painful feelings. Things have been tempered here in the jhanas through your practice, and equanimity is one of the things that helps to accomplish that. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. No more questions, teacher. All right. Let's move to the next one, 74. Yes. Great fruit and benefit of breathing mindfulness meditation. Monks, mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation, when developed and cultivated, is of great fruit and benefit. And how monks is mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation, developed and cultivated, so that it is of great fruit and benefit. Here monks, a monk, having gone to the forest, to the foot of a tree, or an empty hut, sits down. Having folded his legs crosswise, straightened his body, and set up mindfulness in front of him. Just mindful, he breathes in, mindful, he breathes out. Breathing in long, he knows, I breathe in long. Or breathing out long, long, he knows, I breathe out long. Breathing in short, experiencing the whole body, calming the bodily sensations, experiencing joy, experiencing peacefulness, experiencing the mental activity, calming the mental activity, experiencing the mind, gladdening the mind, concentrating the mind, liberating the mind, reflecting on impermanence, reflecting on fading away, reflecting on elimination, reflecting on letting go, it is monks when mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation is developed and cultivated in this way that it is of great fruit and benefit. When monks breathing of mindfulness, mindfulness of breathing, 
breathing mindfulness meditation has been developed and cultivated in this way, one of two fruits may be predicted, either final, final knowledge, wisdom in this very life, or if there is a residue of clinging, the state of non-returner. Great. Thanks, Bassam. So here, the theme of these few chapters that we're diving into so far has this theme of craving in the Buddha talking about this problem of craving, using calmness of mind to abandon that. And previous to this, he was talking about moving into the jhanas through distancing from the sense desires. And now talking about this breathing mindfulness meditation, this is the practice that is going to train the mind in your daily life two to three times a day for 30 minutes or longer to eliminate craving desire attachment. It's through training the mind in this way with breathing mindfulness meditation and all the other aspects of this path, but primarily this is what's moving the mind away from craving desire attachment on a regular, consistent, ongoing basis, and then gaining control over the mind in meditation, then you can then control the mind in daily life, where as you observe pleasant feelings arising, based on some condition, you cut those off and let them go, starting to eliminate and abandon and eradicate fully craving desire attachment. This is what's going to accomplish that. And then down here where he talks about two fruits may be predicted through practicing breathing mindfulness meditation, either final knowledge, which that is enlightenment. Someone who's attained final knowledge, they've eradicated ignorance. Ignorance is the 10th fetter out of the 10 fetters. In order to get to enlightenment, a being would need to eradicate ignorance fully, which once you eradicate ignorance fully, i.e. cultivating this wisdom, then that's what's going to unravel the whole dependent origination from ignorance all the way to discontentedness. So what he's talking about here is someone who's practicing breathing mindfulness meditation is going to ultimately get to enlightenment or if there's a residual clinging, then the state of non-returner, which is the third stage of enlightenment, a being attaining the third stage of enlightenment dying would go and be reborn in heaven and then ultimately attain enlightenment from the heavenly realm. And that would be a guaranteed thing that that would happen because the heavenly realm is not a permanent place to exist, that ultimately those beings are in the cycle of rebirth as well. And the ultimate goal is to escape that cycle of rebirth. If you are able to get to enlightenment in this life, that would be the ultimate goal. That would be the primary objective because then you get to enjoy the rest of this life without having any discontentedness whatsoever. And then upon death, there would no longer be any rebirth in any realm whatsoever. That's what final knowledge is or this final wisdom that a practitioner would end up acquiring through learning and practicing these teachings. But while the Buddha here is putting a highlight on breathing mindfulness meditation, and he talks about it at multiple points in his teachings as a primary practice, it's important that you don't look at any of his teachings in isolation, that he's not saying here that all you need in order to get to enlightenment is breathing mindfulness meditation. If someone were to look at this teaching in isolation, they might be led to think that way. But when you look at all of his teachings together, 
the whole comprehensive work of his 45 years of teaching, then you can see what he's truly doing here is he's putting an emphasis on breathing mindfulness meditation, helping you to see that this should be a priority in your practice, along with many other things that he teaches as well. So he's not just saying that this is all you will need, but he's putting a priority on it. He's putting an emphasis on it, that this is something that we should be cultivating and developing throughout our practice. And that's why I suggest two to three sessions a day for 30 minutes or longer, because once you build up to that, you're doing enough training that you're going to see significant benefits in your daily life that you'll be able to cut off and let go of these arising pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, because through meditation, you will have gained more control over the mind. But without putting that together with all the other steps of the Eightfold Path, one wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment. So be sure that when you see teachings like this where he's emphasizing something, that you don't just look at it in isolation, but you understand there's a much broader perspective, a much broader spectrum of teachings that you'll need to learn and practice in order to ultimately get to enlightenment. So let's see what questions you guys have on this chapter. No question for the, for the chapter later. Oh, a, um, Alan has a question? Uh, yeah, very quickly, teacher. Um, the lines where it says, you know, experiencing the whole body, I will breathe in, and then experiencing the whole body, I will breathe out. And then after that, it says calming the bodily sensations, I will breathe in. Calming the bodily sensations, I will breathe out. Um, do you have any advice for what it means in regards to experiencing the whole body and calming the bodily sensations? Because, you know, if I'm sitting and really just applying, uh, you know, vitakta vichara to, to the breath, um, is, is the experiencing of body and the calming of the body something that's kind of just passive experience or part of the mindfulness package whilst focusing on the breath? Or is it something else? Yeah, it's what you're talking about there is what he's honing in on here is the four foundations of mindfulness, because in breathing mindfulness meditation, we're cultivating mindfulness or awareness of mind and diving into that deeply. It's awareness of bodily sensations, feelings, the condition of the mind and the mental objects. And then we're also cultivating concentration or singleness of mind by focusing just on the breath as the single fixation. And then we're also eliminating craving, desire, attachment. So what he's walking through here in his guidance before he leaves people to themselves in order to work on their mind is he's guiding them to understand that part of this practice as you're focused on the breath is that if you notice bodily sensations arise, then you should let those go or calm the bodily sensations. So say you're in meditation and you're focused on the breath and you feel a little itch on your nose or your shoulder or in your armpit. Rather than itching it right away, observe that that's impermanence and just calm that bodily sensation and just observe that it's there, but let it go and bring the mind back to the breath. That's what he means by calming the bodily sensations. Don't give it any focus. Don't allow your mind to go there. Don't allow your mind to hold on to it and cling to that bodily sensation. Know that it's there because you've experienced the whole body, 
but then cut it off and let it go, i.e. calm the bodily sensation. And this is what you ultimately can do as you're in meditation to bring the mind back to the breath, back to the breath, back to the breath. But then that becomes very crucial for you in daily life because before any discontentedness arises, whether it's pleasant, painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, there's going to be bodily sensations prior to the arising of that feeling coming into the mind. So if you can get to the point of awareness of these bodily sensations in meditation and cut them off and let them go coming back to the breath, then that trains the mind to be able to do that, not only in meditation, but outside of meditation too. And when you're able to do that outside of meditation, when you observe those pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant with right mindfulness, then you can practice right effort, cut that off and let it go. And this is where you start to eliminate craving, desire, attachment more and more, where you get to the point where those painful feelings won't arise anymore. And those pleasant feelings, those conditioned pleasant feelings won't arise anymore. And those feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant will no longer arise because every time you get even the slightest inclination through the bodily sensations that there's some discontentedness to getting ready to arise, the mind has such awareness through mindfulness that you observe it right away and cut it off right away. And when you're able to do that, that's when you're gaining such control over the mind and you have this mental discipline that you keep cutting that off and cutting it off and cutting it off. And eventually the craving is no longer there. So it won't produce any discontentedness. Those feelings of pleasant, painful, and neither painful nor pleasant won't arise because you've done this cutting back. It's kind of like a wild bush growing and you cut it back further and further and further all the way down to the stump and then you uproot the roots and now it won't grow back any longer. So what's arising those pleasant feelings, painful feelings and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant is the craving. That's what's arising those feelings. But prior to them coming into the mind, there's going to be these bodily sensations and you would like to cultivate in meditation and then be able to practice outside of meditation the awareness of those bodily sensations and cutting them off and letting them go, which will ultimately move the mind away from craving, eradicate that, and then you won't experience the arising of discontentedness any longer. Beautiful. Thank you. You're welcome. No more questions, teacher. All right. Let's go to the next chapter, 75. Yes. Uh, the next volunteer is Nick. Breathing mindfulness meditation, an excellent and peaceful dwelling. The Buddha commented on the incidences of monks dying through suicide by themselves or by encouraging and assisting others to do so. On this occasion, the perfectly enlightened one had given them the discourses of Anapanasati, breathing mindfulness meditation. Monks, this concentration by fullness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation, when developed and cultivated is peaceful and superb, an excellent and peaceful dwelling, and it dissolves and extinguishes right on the spot, unevil or evil and unwholesome states whenever they arise. Just as monks, in the last month of the hot season, when a mass of dust and dirt has swirled up, 
a great rain cloud out of season disperses it and extinguishes it on the spot. So too, concentration of mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation, when developed and cultivated, is peaceful and superb and excellent and peaceful dwelling, and it dissolves and extinguishes on the spot evil, unwholesome states whenever they arise. And how is this so? Here, monks, a monk having gone to the forest, to the foot of a tree, or to an empty hut, sits down. Having folded his legs crosswise, straightened his body and set up mindfulness in front of him, just mindful he breathes in, mindful he breathes out. Breathing in long, he knows. I breathe in long. Or breathing out long, he knows. I breathe out long. Breathing in short, he knows. I breathe in short. Or breathing out short, he knows. I breathe out short. He trains thus, experienced the whole body. The rest is repeated as chapter 74. He trains thus, reflecting on letting go. I will breathe in, he trains us, reflecting on letting go, I will breathe out. It is in this way, monks, that concentration by mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation, is developed and cultivated. It is peaceful and superb, an excellent and peaceful dwelling, and it dissolves and extinguishes on the spot evil, unwholesome states whenever they arise. All right. Thanks, Nick. So this chapter 75 is prefaced with a description that the Buddha delivered this discourse when there were monks who were choosing to die by suicide and there were others ordained who were either encouraging that or they were actually assisting people to do that, right? You would think that this ordained community would just have completely stellar conduct and behavior amongst every single last monk but that would be permanence, wouldn't it? We know the universal truth of impermanence that that's not going to be the case. So even amongst a community of ordained practitioners who are actually learning and practicing right alongside of a perfectly enlightened one, a Buddha, there's still going to be incidences of things like suicide and other things in that community too, because the Buddha isn't controlling the individuals. The individuals are making their own choices. And if they choose to commit suicide, then that's what they're choosing to do. The Buddha is not controlling that. But when word comes to him that this is actually occurring, he delivers a discourse to be able to help them so that they can see that they don't need to take their life. There's a myth in some parts of the Buddhist world that they think that if you commit suicide, you instantly attain enlightenment. This is actually completely, utterly false. It's not true. A being who commits suicide is going to be reborn into the lower realms of existence and they're actually extending their suffering for longer and longer and longer periods of time. So it's important to understand that that's not going to lead to enlightenment and suicide is not a honorable way to die for any reason whatsoever. One should learn and practice to eradicate the unwelcome thoughts that are leading someone to feel as if suicide is their only option. That would be the ideal thing. And what the Buddha provides them and prescribes to them as a way to eradicate this unwelcome thought 
of suicide is to practice breathing mindfulness meditation, that that is going to quench this unwelcome thought that arises in the mind of potentially taking one's own life. Now, it's helpful to do breathing mindfulness meditation. That's a priority, as the Buddha describes in other discourses, as part of this path to enlightenment. But it's important to understand that if there's someone right now who has never been on this path before that has suicidal thoughts, it's not like you can sit down and meditate just one time and those suicidal thoughts are going to vanquish from the mind. What the Buddha is talking about here is a community of practitioners who have been actively learning and practicing with him for a certain period of time. And as you train the mind more and more through breathing mindfulness meditation, then those unwelcome thoughts, whether it's suicide or stealing or lying or sexual misconduct or taking substances that cause heedlessness or anything else, as you have the rising thoughts of those things, which are precipitated by craving, desire, attachment, then what he's saying here is, okay, do breathing mindfulness meditation. But it's important that the mind of a practitioner who's never been practicing this path to enlightenment doesn't have the expectation that one session is going to immediately vanquish any of these feelings, these unwholesome, evil mental states that arise. So it's only through a consistent, diligent, dedicated practice that one will gradually train the mind towards enlightenment. But as you progress three months, six months, a year into this, you can get to the point, even though the mind isn't enlightened yet, that when these evil, unwholesome states arise, that you can do meditation and very easily let go of any unwholesome states that arise. So that's the way of practice that one can use this as a tool that where you observe unwholesomeness arising in the mind, if you've done the preliminary work, then you can quench that unwholesome thought through practicing breathing mindfulness meditation, much like the Buddha gives this analogy about a rain cloud extinguishing any swirling dirt that comes up in the atmosphere or in the environment a rain cloud can quench that dust and get rid of it right away, just like breathing mindfulness meditation can do as well. If you've done the work to work on this for three months, six months, a year, and you've got a really good meditation practice developed, then you can get to the point where as you observe these unwholesome states arise, you can meditate them on the breath as you do with breathing mindfulness meditation and get rid of these unwholesome states such as suicide or something like this. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter? No question for this one, teacher. Okay, let's move on to the next one. Chapter 76. Yes, so the next volunteer is Miranda. A monk who is not lacking of jhana. Monks, if just for the time of a finger snap, a monk develops mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness meditation. He is called a monk who is not lacking a jhana, who acts upon the teachings of the teacher, who responds to his advice, who does not eat the country's alms food, having produced no results or benefits. How much more than those who cultivate it? Okay, thank you, Miranda. So here the Buddha is once again pointing to the importance of breathing mindfulness meditation. And oftentimes the way that 
a person who's teaching in the oral tradition might speak is they might speak in extremes in order to make a point. So the Buddha here speaking in extreme is he's saying, okay, if you can meditate just for the length of time of a finger snap, then this person can cultivate the jhanas. And a finger snap, of course, is very short. And then he's saying, okay, if someone just meditates for the length of a finger snap and can cultivate the jhanas, think about what else they can accomplish if they actually cultivate breathing mindfulness meditation on a long-term, ongoing, consistent basis. He's not recommending that someone meditate for the snap of a finger because that's such a short period of time that it wouldn't really result in you know, the fruit of enlightenment. But he's using this and talking in this extreme so it's something that people will remember. But the important thing that he's sharing here is cultivating a well-developed practice of breathing mindfulness meditation because through cultivating this, you will be able to ultimately get to enlightenment through your practice of this and other teachings as well. And then in the middle of this one, he talks about a student who responds to the advice of their teacher. If someone was rejecting their teacher's advice and not really heaving the advice, then that person is going to find it really hard to get to enlightenment. So if someone chooses to have a certain teacher, it's not that you follow everything your teacher says because any wise teacher is going to advise you not to believe anything they say, but instead to learn, reflect, and practice. But there is a certain amount of openness that a student needs in order to have an open mind to receive advice from their teacher as part of this path to enlightenment. And then he even talks here about one who does not eat the country's alms food, having produced no results or benefits. Here, if you think about an ordained practitioner giving up the household life, moving into the ordained life, they're living off of the blood, sweat, and tears of household practitioners who choose to go out and work and develop their career and cultivate money and acquire wealth. And then they give that in terms of food or money or clothing or shelter or resources to people like me and or other or an ordained practitioners who are then supposed to spend time to deeply learn, reflect and practice because they don't have to go out and work at a labor job or build a career or do all the things that household practitioners do, they can instead live off of the food of the household practitioners and develop their practice. And as a result of the household practitioners giving them that benefit of that not needing to work in a career and giving them the opportunity to work diligently in their practice, what the ordained practitioners or teachers like me are supposed to do is then give back to their community teachings that help them develop their mind and develop their life. That's the exchange of gamma for the household practitioners going out and making donations of support to their teacher. The teacher should then make themselves available through sharing the teachings. And because they didn't have to go out and work for an extended period of time, they should have been able to really deeply focus on developing their practice so they're much further along than the community of people who are actually supporting them. And that's the real exchange here. 
So the Buddha at different times in his teachings encourages the ordained practitioners to not just be complacent and live off of the food of the household practitioners, but instead produce results, produce benefits. And the way that a ordained practitioner or someone teaching would do that is first focus deeply on their own practice of learning, reflecting, and practicing the teachings to move their mind closer and closer to enlightenment, potentially even attaining enlightenment. And then as a result of that, then share those teachings with others so that then others through their support of that individual can then move their mind closer and closer to enlightenment. And it shouldn't be that ordained practitioners are just sitting back, relaxing, just doing the bare minimum in order to receive clothing or water or food or shelter, medical supplies. But instead, if all of these household practitioners are out there working really hard and diligently to support these ordained practitioners and teachers like me, we should take it utterly serious and take it upon our responsibility to do our work in our own practice to then give back to the household practitioners who are supporting us in our growth and our practice. So that's a really important line here that I've expanded for you, but I expanded it for you based on other teachings that the Buddha shares as well. He's kind of slipping that in here, essentially encouraging the ordained practitioners not to be complacent and just live off of the food in support of household practitioners, but instead produce results and cultivate these improved mental states where you can move into the jhanas, the first, second, third, and fourth stage, and then offer that back to teachings to the community of people who are supporting us as students. So what questions do you guys have here on this particular chapter? Well, uh, choosing this way of life, which is depending on alms food, was this a way that the Buddha chose for his students just because of uh, low resources at the time or because this way will lead to more wholesome uh, attributes, more wholesome benefits for the mind. The Buddha chose this for his lifestyle. And then if anybody was interested in joining him, then they moved into a similar lifestyle as him. And he wasn't the only person that was doing this in that region of the world. There were people before him that were just living off of the food and donations of the community. But he was originally the prince destined to become a king, and he left all of that wealth to become homeless and roam on the streets and accept donations and live by generosity of the people. And when you're living off of the generosity of the people, now you're essentially working for the people. You are no longer getting paid by your career, by a boss. You're no longer working for profit. You're essentially just accepting whatever donations are offered to you, just enough to sustain your life so that you can focus more and more deeply on your actual practice. And by focusing on your own practice, that's what makes a person a good teacher. Someone wouldn't be able to be a good teacher if they didn't first deeply develop their practice. So the Buddha didn't just leave the palace and go start teaching. He actually left the palace, focused deeply on his own practice for six years. Once he attained enlightenment, then he started actually offering the teachings to those people who chose to join him. 
And by him letting go of the royal palace and all the things that come with that, it allowed his mind to cultivate this humbleness because going from the riches of a royal palace to living off of the generosity of people who choose to give you food, this is a completely different life. You know, in my life, I was a businessman. And, you know, if I was interested in more money, I could do a promotion or I could sell more products or I could hire more employees or I could open a new location and make more income. But when you're living off of donations of your students, you're not thinking about profit. You're not thinking about what you want. What you're thinking about is let me just focus on giving and helping others. And as long as I sustain my life, that's all that really matters because an enlightened being doesn't have any more wants. They don't have these cravings, desires, these attachments. They're not interested in wealth. They're not interested in fame or fortune. They're not interested in driving a Maserati or a Lamborghini or wearing Rolex watches or having expensive fabrics for clothing or living in luxurious conditions. An enlightened being is going to live a very simple life and then really focus their time, effort, energy, and resources on helping others because an enlightened being has already accomplished everything they need to accomplish. They know that their mind is enlightened and they no longer have any wants or desires. They've already let go of the world and their life essentially becomes a life of service, of serving and helping others through making themselves available. So by living off of the generosity of the population of people, it produces the incentive and the interest for you to then be sure that you're sharing good quality teachings with others because your life isn't going to be sustained if you don't give helpful, beneficial teachings to others. If I just chose one day to wake up and not help students and go off and do something else, I wouldn't be able to sustain my life because my life is connected to being able to have food, water, clothing, shelter, and medical supplies. And that's provided by the community of people that I support. And then the teachings that I share are helping those individuals improve their life. And doing this, there's an exchange of gamma, just like with students who go out and work and provide donations to ordained practitioners or to someone like me, those people should then be giving to that community to support them. And I can only speak from my own experiences that I imagine that the Buddha experienced as well is that this is extremely humbling for someone who in the Buddhist case was a prince destined to become a king. In my case, a businessman who was making a significant amounts of money on a monthly and yearly basis to now live off of donations of other people it promotes in the mind a level of humbleness that you know i never really thought was possible but because of choosing to do that for my lifestyle it did promote and create a lot of humbleness in the mind that you know there are days and weeks that go by where i can't eat certain foods you know i have to eat very basic very simple food because i don't have money to be able to afford 
certain foods. Now that I've been teaching for a longer period of time and donations are starting to come in a little bit better, it allows me to have a little bit more flexibility with some of the donations that are coming in. But for someone like the Buddha, he didn't even accept money during his lifetime. He only ever accepted food, water, clothing, shelter, and medical supplies. He didn't accept land. He didn't accept material possessions like animals. He didn't accept other things. He didn't accept gold and silver. He only accepted supplies to sustain his life. And this created a connection between the ordained practitioners and the household practitioners that was unbreakable in terms of these ordained practitioners wouldn't be able to sustain their life without coming in contact and interacting with household practitioners. And household practitioners wouldn't be able to improve the condition of their mind without having interaction with the ordained practitioners to understand and know what the true teachings are. So the Buddha connected, created this link or this connection where the household practitioners needed these ordained practitioners to be able to learn how to improve their life, but the ordained practitioners needed the household practitioners in order to sustain their life. And this created a link where ordained practitioners couldn't just go off and be in a cave for five years or 10 years completely alone. They needed to have support from household practitioners. And household practitioners wouldn't be able to just go off and discover the path to enlightenment on their own because they're not a Buddha. They would need the ordained practitioners. So this created a symbiotic relationship that was beneficial for both groups and allows the community and the population of people to continue to evolve and create a better and better existence for themselves in a better condition of the mind getting to enlightenment. Well, it seems that um, Manan has a question. Let's look over. Um, Teacher David, this um, practice of collecting alms, and, um, and it's, I believe in some traditions um, of Buddhism, this is still practiced by some, some monks. Um, and I've, I've had the chance to observe stories of um, monks having, um, modern day monks having um, this practice. And um, it's it's deeply humbling to see this being being done, and and I think that um, it's it it truly does. Um, I mean, I I feel that there's a disconnect between um, a modern day practitioner and um, their ability to tap into the true meaning of remaining humble and. Um, in oneself and understanding this, um, this you know, it's just the pure act of um, going door to door and um, sort of uh, leaving your bowl out for someone to um, generously give whatever they may think they may wish to offer. Um, and I wanted to find out how a, a practitioner can sort of use this idea of um, you know collect collecting alms and just um, living with no intention of um, necessarily predicting what they're going to be receiving so um, today as I have maintained a job I earn a salary 
Um, there's a monthly understanding of what will be coming my way in terms of resources available for myself and my family. And that predictability, it lends to a sense of comfort and lends to dependencies. And some of them can go unseen and unchecked. And on the other hand, I see this deeply valuable practice of, you know, this, um, you know, collecting alms. I just wanted to sort of bridge the, you know, my own ability to uh, remain unattached to dependencies, which modern day jobs and um, things like that offer. I mean, I, I value that I'm work where I'm working and what I'm doing in my job and receiving that salary. It's it's hard work, but by the same token, it's a very predictable sort of um, transaction there. So, I, and I feel a little bit removed from this um, process of deeply touching upon the humility that is is there. So, I, I find it um, I find that that's a little bit challenging as a practitioner. Yeah, the way that you can cultivate this in your lifestyle, at least on a temporary basis, is, you know, first realize that this is truly a practice that teachers like me and ordained practitioners that we do as part of our lifestyle. But in terms of someone who does have a career and who lives a real household life, that the couple of things that I can think of that get the closest to this, because you're not going to be able to replicate it entirely. But the things that can get closest to this is if you chose to go on a, an extended retreat at a temple where you lived for 10 days or a, a week or 30 days or longer, in those situations, you eat whatever is available at the temple. And in this situation, you can go outside and you can get your own food if you like, but you could also make the choice to just live by whatever food is provided to you at the temple. That's one option. Another one, which isn't quite as strong, but you can kind of do it on a, on a regular basis, and this is kind of a good time of year to actually do that, is that if you're invited over to somebody's house for dinner, for the holidays, or just a regular dinner, is not to have an expectation of what that meal should be and what it would look like, that just accept whatever is given. That's another way to do it. But this practice of accepting alms food and donations, it's only going to be practiced by people who are choosing to have that type of lifestyle. The way for household practitioners to really practice this and essentially what it's doing is it's helping to eliminate attachment or craving for wealth or money, but it's also helping to eliminate any kind of ego, that conceit or that arrogance. So the way that household practitioners can do that is by practicing generosity through making offerings to their teacher or to charities or to other people in need, that helps to practice generosity and letting go of money, eliminating craving, desire, attachment to any kind of wealth. But also, if you're able to cultivate the practice of you know, looking at what I share in chapter 16, I think it is, about dissolving the ego, where you're always being humble, so when you're around your elders or you're around your teacher, people tend to sit on the floor. This is kind of a practice here in Thailand that they use and you'll see in Buddhist culture that you always kind of look to put yourself at a lower position than other people around you because if your parents are sitting on the sofa and you're sitting right next to them, 
this creates a certain amount of arrogance or pride in the mind. Here in Thailand, we tend to have the elders sit or teachers or ordained practitioners sit in an elevated position like on a sofa and then students will sit on the floor. Or if your teacher is sitting on the floor, then you sit on the floor along with them rather than you sitting up at a higher position. And there's other things that I talk about. I didn't discuss this one, but I discuss other things in chapter 16 of volume one, where I talk about sleeping on the floor and washing people's feet and a lot of other things that I talk about in there about how to empty out the conceits or the arrogance and the ego. But this aspect of alms food, it's really only in unique situations where a household practitioner is going to be able to cultivate that, mainly in environments where they're living at a temple or if they're going to visit someone, not having any expectation for any particular type of food or what that meal should look like. Thank you. You're welcome. One more question, teacher. All right, let's move this to chapter 77. Yes, uh, the next volunteer is Manal. Breathing in and breathing out is a certain kind of body. Whenever Ananda, a monk, when breathing in long nose, I breathe in long, or when breathing out long nose, I breathe out long. When breathing in short nose, I breathe in short, or when breathing out short nose, I breathe out short. When he trains thus, experiencing the whole body, I will breathe in. When he trains thus, experiencing the whole body, I will breathe out. When he trains thus, calming the bodily sensations, I will breathe in. And when he trains thus, calming the body, bodily sensations, I will breathe out. Repeated as chapter 74. On that occasion, the monk resides reflecting on the body, in the body, dedicated, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed craving and displeasure in regard to the world. For what reason? I call this a certain kind of body, Ananda, that is, breathing in and breathing out. Therefore, Ananda, on that occasion, the monk resides reflecting on the body, in the body, dedicated, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed craving and displeasure in regard to the world. Okay, thanks, Manal. So this is getting to what I was talking about with Alan based on his question, is here the Buddha is choosing to give that same guidance in terms of breathing mindfulness meditation, but he's really emphasizing the bodily sensations and developing and cultivating mindfulness of those bodily sensations when he's saying here, reflecting on the body in the body, because that level of awareness of those bodily sensations when discontentedness is arising is ultimately what it's going to take to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. If you're observing discontentedness coming into the mind when it's feelings in the mind, that's that second part of the four foundations of mindfulness. And that's good. That's better than probably where we were when we were completely off of this path, that you're observing the pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant once they become feelings in the mind. But in order to really get ahead of the curve and eliminate craving, desire, attachment, you've got to be able to develop mindfulness of the bodily sensations in meditation and then be able to observe that outside of meditation when discontentedness is starting to arise and cut it off as bodily sensations. That's where you're ultimately going to be able to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. The Buddha also talks here in this one about removing craving and displeasure in regard to the world. 
What he's talking about here is this is how the mind that is in the unenlightened state wants the world to be in a certain way. It craves for the world to be a certain way. And it's holding on to so many different things in the world. And oftentimes the unenlightened mind is going to try to convince others to do something. And they think that their lack of peacefulness is because their mom or dad won't do this or their brother and sister are doing this thing or their neighbors or their neighborhood is doing this thing. And what the Buddha is explaining here is you need to let go of all craving, desire, attachment, including the craving in regard to the world and wanting the world to function in a certain way because the unrelated mind has this perspective and these expectations of wanting the world to function in a certain way. And this is part of the problem is that the world can't function in the way that you want it to function. The world functions in the way that it functions based on the natural laws of existence. All you can do is learn, reflect, and practice in order to discover the truth of these natural laws of existence, gain that wisdom, and now start making your decisions through the wisdom of these natural laws of existence. That's where the mind awakens to enlightenment. And now because you understand these natural laws of existence, you can make wiser decisions that lead to wholesome outcomes. But the unenlightened mind doesn't see that. What the unenlightened mind wants to do is go around and fix all these material things and fix all the people in the world because the unenlightened mind has a certain expectation or a certain perspective of how it wants the world to work but it doesn't work that way. And this is why an unenlightened mind struggles. One of the reasons why it struggles in the world is because it doesn't understand what it doesn't understand. It's difficult and it struggles to exist in a world that it doesn't understand. It wants the world to function in a certain way, but yet the world's not functioning in that way. And that's why the mind struggles trying to force the world and the people around you to function in that certain way. That's craving in regard to the world or having displeasure in regard to the world, kind of complaining or being negative about the world. Instead, what an enlightened being is going to ultimately be doing is learning and practicing these teachings to understand the natural laws of existence. And once you understand those laws, now you understand why the world functions in the way that it does. You no longer are craving the world to function in the way that you want it to function, but instead you understand why the world functions in the way that it does, because now you understand all these natural laws of existence. So therefore you can let go of this craving for the world to be a certain way. You can let go of this displeasure for the world, thinking that, there's negativity and all the negative things in the world because you understand how the world functions. An enlightened being sees the suffering, sees the problems, sees all the challenges in the world, but their mind understands why those things are happening. And an enlightened mind understands that they can't necessarily fix those things. All they can do is understand how the world functions. And through understanding how the world functions, you can train the mind to let go and stop craving for things to be a certain way. So that's an important thing here that you'll see in other parts of the Buddhist teachings where he talks about 
removing craving in regard to the world, essentially holding on to the world. So if you watch the news and you get angry or disgruntled about the way things are working in the world and what things that are happening, you have craving and displeasure for the world. You have to remove that. Or if you hear certain news in your community or in your town or your city and it produces worry or it produces fears or any kind of other discontent feelings, then you know that you still have craving and displeasure in regard to the world. And what the Buddha is saying here is breathing mindfulness meditation, along with all of his other teachings, are what's going to lead to removing this craving and displeasure for the world. Rather than going around trying to fix the world and all the things in the world, what the Buddha is encouraging you to do is meditate. Because by meditating, you're actually addressing the real problem. No matter how much you go out into the world trying to fix your life partner, your children, your neighbors, your parents, or any other beings around you, no matter how much you try to fix them, it's not fixing the root problem. You can't fix all of these things, but you can fix your own mind. You have the ability to do that. And if you do meditation and practice all the other aspects of this path, then you're removing this craving and displeasure in regard to the world and you're actually fixing the actual root problem which is deep inside the unenlightened mind so let's see what questions you guys have on this chapter no question this time teacher okay chapter 78 yes uh, the next volunteer is nick mindfulness of the body here a monk going to the forest or to the foot of a tree or to an empty hut, sits down. Having folded his legs crosswise, set his body erect and established mindfulness in front of him. Ever mindful he breathes in, mindful he breathes out. Breathing in long, he understands, I, I breathe in long. Or breathing out long, he understands, I breathe out long. Breathing in short, he understands, I breathe in short or breathing out short, he understands, I breathe out short. He trains thus, I shall breathe in experiencing the whole body. He trains thus, I shall breathe out experiencing the whole body. He trains thus, I shall breathe in calming the bodily sensations. He trains thus, I shall breathe out calming the bodily sensations. As he resides, thus diligent, dedicated, and determined, his memories and thoughts based on the household life are abandoned. With their abandoning, his mind becomes steadily or steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness, and concentrated. That is how a monk develops mindfulness of the body. Okay, thanks, Nick. So here the Buddha is giving a consolidated teaching on just developing mindfulness of the body, which is what Alan was questioning about. What are those statements about experiencing the whole body, calming the bodily sensations? And I was helping him to see that that's what the Buddha was teaching. And you can see that here in this more consolidated version where he didn't go through all the things that he usually guides somebody in, in terms of meditation. But here he's focusing on just the statements related to cultivating mindfulness of the body. So he's leading somebody in meditation here or a group of people in meditation and helping them to develop mindfulness of the body. 
And then ultimately he gets to this last part where he encourages his ordained practitioners to be diligent, dedicated, and determined to let go of their memories of household life, abandon those. Because if you can imagine having a certain household life up to 20, 30, 40, 50, however many years old before they ordain, as they were ordained and in this kind of substandard lifestyle, this homeless lifestyle, their mind most likely had craving, desire. It longed for the past when they were so much more comfortable in this household life. And he's saying, you know, abandon that and let that go. Because by doing so, then your mind can come to singleness and it can be steadied and quieted and brought to this singleness, this concentration. That's what he guides ordained practitioners for, where you can actually apply this teaching to your life as a household practitioner is that if there are certain things that were going on in your life in the past that were maybe more pleasant than what your current life is, you need to let that go. That stuff is in the past. You need to realize that that's not your life anymore. Or if you had painful things that were happening in the past, you have to let those things go too and realize that's not where your life is right now. And this is where the Buddha is essentially helping you to understand to bring the mind into the present moment. That as long as the mind has this craving, desire, attachment, this longing with strong eagerness for the past, doesn't matter if it's for the household life or any other aspects of your life, maybe a boyfriend, girlfriend that you wish you would have held on to or a job or a career that you wish you would have held on to or a certain living situation that you wish you would have held on to. Any of those things in the past that the mind is still holding on to and longing for with a strong eagerness, it's going to create a situation where the mind is discontent and it's not going to be able to accomplish this steadiness or this quietness or this singleness of mind, this concentration. But by letting all of that craving, desire, attachment go, that's where the mind can get this focus, this clarity of mind and this concentration. So one of the things that people think is that meditation is what's bringing this quietness and this concentration to the mind. And it is, but not exactly. What's really actually bringing the mind to this quietness and this singleness of mind and this concentration is the elimination of craving, desire, attachment. As long as the mind has these various cravings, this longing with a strong eagerness, this yearning, this wanting, this expectations, either for the past or the future or any particular things whatsoever, the mind is going to be muddled. It's going to be discontent. It's going to lack concentration and clear comprehension. So meditation is the tool and the mechanism that helps us to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. And we also eliminate it through our daily practice by when we observe the pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or neither painful nor pleasant feelings arise, we cut that off and let it go. Ultimately, what that's doing is eliminating craving, desire, attachment in the mind. That's what's creating the muddle-mindedness. That's what's creating the lack of concentration and the inability to focus. So what the Buddha is talking about here is eliminating craving, desire, attachment. And he's just kind of framing it in terms of observing the bodily sensations and if the mind's longing for the past to abandon that, essentially cut it off and let it go. And that's how you bring the mind to the middle 
where it can perform optimally having this singleness of mind or concentration. It's through the elimination of craving, desire, attachment. But you can't get to that if you don't have mindfulness of the body. Because by having mindfulness of the body is what allows you to cut off the pleasant feelings and other discontentedness so that you can then eliminate craving, desire, attachment. And you can't get to mindfulness to eliminate craving if you don't have the wisdom of how to do that. And it's the Buddhist teachings that's giving you the wisdom to cultivate this mindfulness and concentration and all the other factors of the path, which ultimately leads to the elimination of craving, desire, attachment, which ultimately leads to this peacefulness in the mind. So it's one step after another after another. This causal relationship of cause and effect or action and result by arising wisdom in the mind through learning and practicing these teachings, it leads to you choosing to meditate, to you choosing to arise mindfulness in the mind, to you developing your concentration, to you abandoning and eliminating craving, desire, attachment, which ultimately leads to this concentration and this clarity of mind, this peacefulness in the mind. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Madame has a question, so let's go to her. Yes, I'm focusing on um, the um, household life, the abandonment of household life. Um, So this is advice given to ordained monks. I understand that. Um, However, if we can expand uh, this idea, um, and if the Buddha was, um, if someone came to the Buddha and asked them, um, I have an option to um, lead my life with um, attending to uh, mindfulness of the body, uh, mindfulness of the mind, uh, increasing concentration, and um, achieving a peacefulness of the mind if I do not marry and if I do not um, decide to get married and have children, or can I choose to get married and have children and lead a householder's life and um, then continue to um, develop mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of the mind, etc. Would the Buddha have direction as far as um, option A or option B being a more wiser path? A Buddha doesn't tell their students what to do. It's up to the students to choose for themselves. So a teacher and a Buddha as well, because a Buddha is a teacher, isn't going to make decisions for their students. And here's the reason why. If a household practitioner comes to a teacher or to a Buddha and says, I have option A and I have option B. Option A is to ordain and come be with you and learn deeply. Or option B is to remain as a householder, get married and have children. Which one do you suggest? Well, the Buddha or any teacher can't make that decision for the student because the student has certain craving desire attachments in the mind that if they don't extinguish those they're not going to be able to attain enlightenment so let's just say a teacher or a buddha did say we won't say and they shouldn't say but let's just say we did say take option a ordain but let's just say this person has a craving in their mind to get married, to have children, and they never do that, but yet they do ordain. They're not gonna actually be able to attain enlightenment unless they extinguish that craving to not have a life partner and not have children. 
And one way to do that is brutally just meditate and practice and really eliminate it. But another way is to actually fulfill it. And oftentimes things like having life partners and children, the way to actually eliminate those cravings to actually fulfill them. So if a teacher told a student, yes, you should ordain, come ordain with me, then that is subverting the student's own decision making where there can be a craving in there that may not get extinguished as a result of just ordaining that they may need to go have a life partner, have children experience that in order to extinguish that craving desire attachment. So a wise Buddha, which a Buddha is going to be wise and a wise teacher who is enlightened would know, don't ever make any decisions for your students. You can guide, you can give teachings, you can give the pros and cons of both options and help your students look at it and evaluate it. But ultimately, the decision always needs to be with the student without the teacher ever putting any kind of information that would even allude to the teacher making the decision for the student. That's very, very important. Now, in terms of attaining enlightenment, if somebody chose to be ordained, that those conditions are more conducive for somebody to attain enlightenment. But again, if the person still has craving for a household life and they haven't extinguished all the things in a household life that they're interested in doing, doesn't matter if they ordain or not. If they don't extinguish those things, they're not going to get to enlightenment. So it's really important that each individual student evaluates and reflects of what's the right choices for them and that teachers do not try to make decisions for their students. And while ordaining a may be more conducive, a household life, you can attain enlightenment. You just need to have inner discipline beyond what you may currently have because there's pros and cons with both of these. There's pros and cons with ordaining and there's pros and cons with remaining in a household life and attaining enlightenment through that life. And if you deeply understand what those are, then it's up to the student to make their own choice. I would never advise a student to ordain or not ordain. It's ultimately the student's choice of what they would choose to do. But as a teacher, what I would just do is help ensure that the student evaluates all the pros and cons of everything and then make sure that they understand that it's their decision of what they should choose to do. And that's going to ultimately produce the best results. I recognize that it's important for a student to be very clear with questioning a teacher in order for the teacher to gauge the condition of that student's mind um, such that they can provide um, guidance and, um, and, and I understand that a teacher would not be able to uh, give a decision and determine that the student would uh, need to choose better at option A or, or option B. Um, I think that the idea behind the question here today, though, is if to, in today's time, if someone were to lead, um, um, you're not speaking about of, of um, uh, ordaining, um, but if they were to choose a life of uh, remaining single, 
or to choose a life um, and to have a married life and to have a household, children, etc. So these these two paths is what I was referring to, and um, and the challenges that um, either path would would sort of have in terms of um, having greater mindfulness of the body and mindfulness mindfulness of the mind, greater concentration, etc. Um, so um, appreciate your your answer. I I guess um, there isn't a um, there isn't a clear direction that can be given by a teacher ever, I understand that. Um, and I think um, overall I was just referring to the path which one chooses if they were to bring this question to a teacher. And in my example, this would be relevant to me because um, I have children who would be, be raised with a certain set of um, values in their life. And if they were to come to me and ask me, hey, I've done this much in my life and I have, should I do this or should I do that? Um, not again speaking about ordaining, but just living a life of remaining single and very determined in the path towards um, understanding the truth versus having that same goal, however, choosing to get married and having children. Even in that situation, parents shouldn't make decisions for their children because in order for someone to extinguish all of their cravings, they need to be able to understand their mind and what's there and what they need to do in this life in order to extinguish all of those. So whether it's the role of a teacher with a student or a parent with a child, the best thing that we can do is help the person to talk through and evaluate all the options but we shouldn't be the one that's doing the evaluating we shouldn't be the ones who are making the choices it should be the individual because what we're doing is we're helping people to gain wisdom in order to make wiser decisions whether they're a teacher-student relationship or a parent-child relationship if we make decisions for our children then we're not cultivating their wisdom to help them learn how to make wiser and wiser decisions. So our role as a parent is to guide our children in cultivating wisdom so that they become very wise decision makers because we are impermanent and we can't be with our children always. So by helping them cultivate wisdom and make the decisions and then ultimately experience the results of those decisions, that's what's going to help them develop into a wise decision maker to make wiser and wiser decisions in their life to have more and more wholesome outcomes yes i understand your points thank you mm -hmm. no more question teacher all right 79 yes let's go to manel for this chapter one who has developed and cultivated mindfulness of the body Again, monks when walking, a monk understands I am walking, and when standing, he understands I am standing. When sitting, he understands I am sitting. When lying down, he understands I am lying down, or he understands accordingly, however, his body is positioned. Again, monks, a monk is one who acts in full awareness when going forward and returning, who acts in full awareness when looking ahead and looking away, who acts in full awareness when flexing and extending his limbs, who acts in full awareness when wearing his robes and carrying his outer robe and bowl, who acts in full awareness when eating, drinking, consuming food, and tasting, 
who acts in full awareness when defecating or urinating, who acts in full awareness when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent. As he resides thus diligent, dedicated, and determined, his memories and thoughts based on the household life are abandoned. With their abandoning, his mind becomes steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness, and concentrated. That too is how a monk develops mindfulness of the body. Monks, anyone who has developed and cultivated mindfulness of the body has included within himself whatever wholesome states there are that lead to true wisdom. Just as anyone who has extended his mind over the great ocean has included within it whatever streams there are that flow into the ocean. So too, anyone who has developed and cultivated mindfulness of the body and has included within himself whatever wholesome states there are that lead to true wisdom. In addition, it was also mentioned that to develop reflection on unattractiveness of the body, 32 part body meditation, and to develop the first jhana all the way to the fourth jhana are also considered as developing mindfulness of the body. Okay. I'm just going to see what questions you guys have on this one because we've been kind of talking about the same topics throughout today's class. And I'll just see what questions you guys have, if any, on this particular chapter. Not seeing any question for this one, teacher. All right. So let's go ahead and move to the next one. This is the last chapter. And I think you asked me to read this one, Bossum? Yeah, please, teacher. Yeah. Okay. So here this one's titled Mindfulness Directed to the Body, a Strong Post for the Mind. And there's multiple teachings here. One dwells without having set up mindfulness of the body. Suppose, monks, a man would catch six animals with different domains and different feeding grounds and tie them by a strong rope. He would catch a snake, a crocodile, a bird, a dog, a jackal, and a monkey and tie each by a strong rope. Having done so, he would tie the ropes together with a knot in the middle and release them. Then, those six animals with different domains and different feeding grounds would each pull in the direction of its own feeding ground and domain. The snake would pull one way, thinking, let me enter an anthill. The crocodile would pull another way, thinking, let me enter the water. The bird would pull another way, thinking, let me fly up into the sky. The dog would pull another way, thinking, let me enter a village. A jackal would pull another way, thinking, let me enter a charnel ground. The monkey would pull another way, thinking, let me enter a forest. Now, when these six animals become worn out and fatigued, they would be dominated by the one among them that was strongest. They would submit to it and come under its control. So too, monks, when a monk has not developed and cultivated mindfulness directed to the body, the eye pulls in the direction of agreeable forms and disagreeable forms are repulsive. The ear pulls in the direction of agreeable sounds and disagreeable sounds are repulsive. The nose pulls in the direction of agreeable odors and disagreeable odors are repulsive. The tongue pulls in the direction of agreeable flavors and disagreeable flavors are repulsive. The body pulls in the direction of agreeable physical objects and disagreeable physical objects are repulsive. The mind pulls in the direction of agreeable mental objects and disagreeable mental objects are repulsive. In such a way, 
that there is non-restraint. So there's more after this, but I'm going to pause here. So here, this is describing a practitioner who has not developed mindfulness of the body in that the sense bases are pulling in all the six directions like these animals. And once five of them have essentially given up, whichever one is strongest, the mind is going to pull in that direction. So if the ears, nose, tongue, bodily contact in the mind is given up, but there's this craving through the eyes, that one is the strongest, that's the one that is going to have the most craving, desire, attachment, and the mind is going to be subjected to that one. And because of that, the Buddha is saying there is not restraint. But now he talks about one who does reside, having set up mindfulness for the body. Essentially, what he's doing here is he's explaining how important mindfulness of the bodily sensations are. Because if you don't have awareness of the bodily sensations, like in the first part of this chapter, then there's not going to be restraint of the mind. But if you cultivate this awareness or this mindfulness of the bodily sensations, then you can get to where there is restraint, where there is mental discipline. And that's what he's going to describe here. Suppose, monks, a man would catch six animals with different domains and different feeding grounds and tie them by a strong rope. He would catch a snake, a crocodile, a bird, a dog, a jackal, and a monkey and tie each by a strong rope. Having done so, he would bind them to a strong post or pillar. So in the first one, he talks about tying all of these animals together in a rope. There is no strong post or pillar, but he just ties a knot with all the six animals together. And now they have the freedom to pull in all these different directions. There's no post, there's no pillar. But here, with mindfulness directed to the body, what he's saying is, okay, now there's this strong post and pillar, and the animals are tied to this post and pillar. Now, when those animals are pulling in the six different directions, and I'm not going to read all the way through that again, because we've already talked about that, of how they're pulling in all these different directions. Now, when these six animals become worn out in fatigue, they would stand close to that post or pillar. They would sit down there. They would lie down there. Where in the first example, once five of them become worn out, the sixth one is going to keep pulling in the direction of the objects of its affection. Here, when you have a strong post and pillar, what he's talking about is all six of them get worn out and they sit by the post and pillar. What he's describing here is how the mind submits. When all your sense bases are pulling and tugging through these six sense bases and there's craving pulling through all these six sense bases, if you are aware of the bodily sensations of discontentedness, pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, and you cut off those three feelings, all that discontentedness, if you cut it off and pull it back and cut it off and pull it back, cut it off and pull it back, it's like these animals are tied to this post and pillar. Eventually, the animals get tired and they just sit by the post and pillar. Well, your mind eventually is going to get tired of you constantly pulling it back. It's going to get worn out. 
and it's going to eventually submit and it's going to stay in the middle. That's what he's talking about here. But it's this poster pillar, this breathing mindfulness meditation, getting awareness of the bodily sensations that's going to do that for you. So here he goes on. He says, so too monks, when a monk has developed and cultivated mindfulness directed to the body, the eye does not pull in the direction of agreeable forms, nor are disagreeable forms repulsive. So what he's essentially saying here is there's no discontentedness that's coming in through the eyes. And then he goes on to the other six sense bases. The ear does not pull in the direction of agreeable sounds, nor are disagreeable sounds repulsive. The nose does not pull in the direction of agreeable odors, nor are disagreeable odors repulsive. The tongue does not pull in the direction of agreeable flavors, nor are disagreeable flavors repulsive. The body does not pull in the direction of agreeable physical objects, nor are disagreeable physical objects repulsive. The mind does not pull in the direction of agreeable mental objects, nor are disagreeable mental objects repulsive. It is in such a way that there is restraint because now the mind is restrained. It's no longer pulling towards agreeable objects and it's no longer repulsed by disagreeable objects. A strong post or pillar, the, this monks is a designation for mindfulness directed to the body. Therefore, monks, you should train yourselves thus. We will develop and cultivate mindfulness directed to the body, make it our vehicle, make it our basis, stabilize it, exercise ourselves in it, and fully perfect it. Thus should you train yourselves. So he's sharing with you how important breathing mindfulness meditation is in particularly getting to the point where you've developed your mindfulness so well that you have awareness of those bodily sensations so that you can cut them off and let it go. Let those feelings, those discontent feelings, that discontentedness go and pull the mind back, making it this post or pillar. And that's how you're ultimately going to restrain the sense bases, eliminating central desire. Questions on this chapter? No question this time, teacher. All right. That's the last chapter for today. And next week, we're going to be in chapters 81 through chapters 90. So you can read those this week and then come to class with any questions that you have. If you're seeing this for the first time or hearing this for the first time, you can download this book at buddhadailywisdom.com and click on the link for free books. From there, you'll be able to download volume three and read chapters 81 through 90 and then come to class and join us for the discussion and get any questions that you'd like answered to the questions that arise. Tomorrow in our group learning program, we're going to be discussing chapter five of volume one. This is the eightfold path, the path for all humans to enlightenment. It's utterly important that you learn that inside and out, backwards and forwards, if you've heard me talk about this once or twice or three times, there's really no such thing as hearing it too much. It's really important to know the Eightfold Path like the back of your hand because that's what builds to the jhanas and that's ultimately what's going to see you through 
the four stages of enlightenment and all of these other teachings that we're learning in the Pali Canon are really based on the Eightfold Path. So if you're planning to join that class live, you're welcome to do that or be sure to listen to it on YouTube, Facebook, or in our podcast. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be starting our first class of a four-part series to learn chanting. So if you'd like to learn Buddhist chanting or if you'd like some practice in your Buddhist chanting, you can join that class. And over a four-part series, I'm going to introduce you and help you deeply learn and understand why we do Buddhist chanting, how it was used in the past, and how it can actually benefit you in your practice today. So thank you all for joining today's class. I'll see you either on Sunday, Wednesday, or next Saturday. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment. Enlightenment.